Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. So, Cora, question What's a name other than Adolf that has been permanently ruined for future children? And if we're discounting just names that sound old, because they actually could come back into fashion again. I had a couple of interesting ideas because basically Karen and Chad, because of the way the internet has started to adopt Karen uh, as that personality type, I'm betting that's actually going to be ruined for the future generations for a long time, actually, because the internet is seen as a place that takes something and then moves on really quickly. But because Karen is now just a placeholder for a name and we have to anonymize names when we tell stories, people are going to keep using Karen. Chad falls under a similar thing because people talk about Chad's in a plural as a personality type. So once those names become connected with a personality type, then they are no longer really attractive as names anymore because you're assigning personality types to your children. This is actually exactly what happened with Adolf because we assume if you meet someone named Adolf, probably the parents are either pro-Nazis or they are predicting that that kid is going to be a white supremacist or something. They're connecting personality traits of a dictator with that child by calling them Adolf. And now the same thing's happened with Karen and Chad. The question I have is, now that we have COVID-19 and the coronavirus as being common terms, next year, how many kids are actually going to be born and named Corona or covid because I bet that's something that actually happens. So look out for that as a news story a year from now. So I use YouTube. This is kind of my thought of the day. I use YouTube probably like everyone else does uh, in that I watch things that I enjoy. But what I do that maybe other people who don't use YouTube the same way I do is I use it for a lot of things that I'm researching, things that I specifically don't like. Uh, the most recent example of that would have been a lot of Steven Seagal stuff watching things about him, watching things with him in it, watching people talk about Steven Seagal. What I've realized is that this has really messed up the algorithm for my recommendations. Because now I get a lot of recommendations for Steven Seagal stuff that I don't want to see. And I realized what I actually need is a new identity. I need essentially two online identities. One where I do stuff that I really, really like so the algorithm can figure out what I like and actually make good recommendations to me. And I need one where it's all the stuff I hate and I search that. So it can actually make good recommendations for stuff I'm going to hate more that would end up being content like this where I can talk about stuff I don't like. And one thing I've always complained about the algorithms when you buy something. So the last example is I bought some shoes. Now, I bought the shoes only because they were on sale. I wasn't actually looking for shoes. But then for a couple of weeks, every ad I got, every targeted ad was some kind of shoe-oriented thing. Now, they weren't on sale, so they didn't actually fit the criteria 
of what I was looking for when I bought the original shoes. And then recently, I broke my headphones. So I started immediately looking for new headphones. And very quickly, I started getting all targeted ads for headphones, which seems fine. But after the first day of research, my wife actually went out and bought me some really, really nice headphones. So now I have the headphones. I suddenly am not interested in buying them anymore. But I'm still weeks and weeks later getting ads targeted towards headphones. Now, I think this might be because I don't do as much online shopping as is visible to the internet as a whole. When it sees that I'm interested in something, it has to latch onto that so it can deliver more ads and more ads and more ads about stuff that's actually targeted to me. The problem is it's not doing the smart thing by getting me before I buy the product. What it needs to do is figure, okay, well, if he's wearing shoes, if these are shoes for work, probably last for about a year, we need to start targeting his ads in about 10 to 11 months and then start pushing shoes on him. Headphones, he seems to take care of them. He's bought a pair every X amount of years. What we need to do is record that piece of information and then in two years from now, start targeting ads towards him about headphones when it's likely that he's used them so much his headphones are broken. So either... I need two identities, which I actually think I do because you need a real identity so that the algorithm does work for you and you need the identity for all the negative stuff so that actually gives you sort of a mirror image of your personality. This is like a bizarro Peter algorithm and then I can use them for a different purpose. But one way to improve that algorithm more than anything else would be to take the information, like how often I've bought shoes in the past, and then use that information to set up your targeting ads in the future because that's when it's actually going to be effective. So I, I, computer guys who listen to this, I mean, what do you need more than anything else is to listen to that. Predictive algorithms. I, like everyone, have had more than one failure in my life. And weirdly, those seem to, I guess not weirdly, people enjoy hearing about other people's failures because you're kind of at least at that point laughing together I guess is the idea but I've had two that were essentially inspired by movies reality came in and just took a big dump all over them the first one I've actually maybe told before so if you joined early in the podcast days you may have actually heard this story and it's about uh, how I basically ended my competitive judo career so I was working towards being good and I've said a couple times now, I, I probably never had the inherent talent to be sort of national level or international level good. I'm a great club fighter. I'm a good guy to have around to practice with. I can do some neat things. You know, whatever. We don't get too deep into it. But I've been doing judo consistently. I realized early on I never had natural talent. I had to work harder than other people to get to the same level. But that created a work ethic Whereas I worked harder than most people in a lot of things, and I ended up getting better than them. And that actually, in some cases, was really satisfying because they would actually be confused as to why this guy who had never even come close to touching them before, they suddenly couldn't actually beat in a fight. So I was in a judo competition, and it was a very big one for me. Uh, it, was, it was going to launch my meteoric rise to fame. Uh, there are no famous people in judo, so... That's already a, a bit of a misnomer, but this was going to be the thing that took me to the next level. Uh, and my opponent grabbed a couple of my fingers and pulled them back really far. And so they broke. Uh, that is probably one of the most painful things that can happen. Now, I don't want to disparage my opponent. 
It could have been done by accident. It could have been done on purpose. I don't know. It's not like I'm ever going to sit down and talk to the guy and ask him. It's not like he would tell me the truth anyway. So let's just chalk it up to an accident that happens. Judo is a rough sport. People get hurt. So I did what they did at the end of Best of the Best. You go off and you wrap it up. So I think in Best of the Best, it's like a Taekwondo movie where the American Taekwondo team has to fight the Korean Taekwondo team. And it's a really cheesy movie, but it's sort of one of those inspirational ones that gets a pass because it hits every beat it's supposed to hit and you kind of enjoy it anyways. There's nothing surprising about it. So in the movie, he, uh, I think, dislocates his shoulder or something. So they tape it up and he comes out and he kicks his opponent in the face and he wins. He wins for the team. That's great. Of course, it was a tie. as a team event. So it was five people and it was two to two. So this was the final match. And, and he, he fought through the pain, did all the things he had to do, manned up, and uh, he won that fight. So I had just hurt my hand. I, I'd lost a couple fingers technically. So we taped it up and I went back in and real life then took a step and said, hey, you can't win a fight with one hand, young man. And I got thoroughly beaten very quickly. And that is sensible. That is exactly what should happen. So like in a real movie, the guy with the dislocated shoulder isn't going to beat the guy who is maybe hurt, but less hurt than he is. The movie ending is that I would have won that fight with some interesting move I had learned or a unique thing that had happened earlier in the film, something my, my coach had taught me special just for me, and that would have been the move I did. What, what really happened is I walked up to him and he threw me on the ground and won because I could barely defend myself with one hand. This leads me to a secondary, not necessarily failure, but where movies had taught me that something was going to happen that ended up not happening. So I, after university, was looking for my first job. This is what you're supposed to do. I took an internship at a publishing house. So I wasn't getting paid, but I was you know, learning about the publishing industry. I was an aspiring writer at the time. Again, probably don't have the talent to actually be successful. But this is what dreams are, something that you, you have and you build up and then you you crash them down and you start drinking. Uh, I worked at this publishing company and I was really primarily just formatting books they were going to release. This was such a small publishing company, they actually worked out of the guy's house. So I was in this guy's basement. Uh, he had a computer down there, a Mac, with basically two programs on it, publisher and some kind of airplane simulator game, which I quite frankly played a lot. So all I did was align text and he was doing a lot of poetry. So I had to make it look balanced. I either had to decide whether it was all going to be justified right or center justified, depending on the poem and the style and the feeling they were going for. And it was a good piece of software to learn if I was going to go into the publishing industry, which I didn't end up doing. But again, if I had done that, this actually would have been a useful experience thing. I could say like, yes, I could format your books for you. I could get the cover art right. I could do a, a lot of the things that needed to be done. I'm sure that software has been like more than 20 years. So that software has come so far and it's totally different. I don't even have those skills anymore. One of the best aspects of that job was that uh, when there was downtime and there was a lot of downtime, I got to read submitted manuscripts. I did have the pleasure, I guess, of sending some rejection letters. So he's like, just write them, be nice, but say like primarily because we publish poetry and we don't publish novels and people just send their novels to everybody. We get a lot of novels that are fine. I mean, not necessarily good or bad, uh, but we're not going to take them anyways. So just send a nice letter back. But I 
always wanted to take a look at what other people who had the same interest in me, like writing stuff for a future, what were they producing? Was I better? Was I worse? That always comes into it. And I got to read some of the worst written language ever produced. My favorite one, the one that sticks out the most that I remember the most, and it was essentially, this was pre uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. This was an erotic novel and it was about a dominant man who meets a woman and then just immediately they have chemistry and then they just basically start fucking everywhere they are. But the first encounter was he meets her at a grocery store and they talk and there's that instant spark. There's that, that passion that just bubbles up from nothing and it encompasses their whole world. And he needs to show that he's dominant. And the way he does it is he takes her hand and he puts it on a frozen turkey and he holds it there. And this is very descriptive. I mean, this goes on and on and on about how he's holding it there and her hand's getting numb and she wants to take it away and it kind of hurts, but it doesn't hurt. And now she can't feel anything and her emotions are all askew and she doesn't understand what's going on, but she likes it and hates it at the same time. This was all in these first pages. I couldn't move past the fact that the erotic moment was this guy holding a woman's hand against a turkey. That, to me, kind of ruined the whole experience he was going for. So I wrote a nice letter to him saying that, of course, this is not poetry. Uh, this is not what we publish. So good luck in the future, stuff like that. Very basic. There was a couple times when people wrote stuff that was good and I got to write them a really nice letter saying, sorry, this is, pub this is not poetry. We publish poetry. Uh, but, you know, I think you should keep trying. I think this was a really good effort, stuff like that. So that always, it was nice to be able to do that for someone else when I know very few people would have done that for me. So I was getting to the end of my internships, again, back to my uh, dose of reality here. And in the movies, what would happen is you had worked at this publishing company. There would have been uh, no real recognition, but what you do is leave your novel that you've been working on on a computer. And then the guy who runs the company runs across this file he's never seen before. So he opens it up and he starts reading it. And he gets really into it. He can't, he can't stop reading it. It's just the best piece of fiction he's ever read in his life. It's amazing. And then he calls you up and he says, I just saw the book. I, I want to publish it. And then that starts your publishing career. So I did something very similar to that. I left a copy of a book I was working on, on the computer uh, that I knew the boss was going to work on. Now, again, this was a novel and they published poetry. So reality would have told me already that even if he did like it, he wasn't going to be publishing it because that wasn't in his wheelhouse. It's not what he did. Maybe I could take it a step further fiction-wise and go, oh, this is he'd recommend it to his friend who he knows who publishes novels. And that would be my way in. Uh, and it wasn't. So what happened was... I left the file on a computer, basically on the desktop, so it would be there. And I, I could claim it was an accident. I just, you know, I was working on it in some of my downtime, not playing the airplane simulator. And with that, I would have my novel seen by someone who would take a real interest, and they would publish it, or they would give it to someone who would publish it, and that would start my publishing career. This would be a great story. This would be a great origin story I could tell when I was being interviewed years later uh, when I was publishing my 20th novel. Uh, and This is all I had done my whole life, and I was well-respected in the world. Uh, that also never happened. The reality was, I left my novel on this guy's computer, and I went away, we parted ways, and I went on to try to find other jobs, and I actually started trying to get jobs in computers and stuff like that, that didn't go nowhere. This was like 1999, early 2000, right when the tech crash happened. 
So basically, anyone who, people working in computer companies were getting fired while I was trying to look for a job. So uh, yeah, sensibly, that didn't work out. And reality stepped in, and I basically never heard from him again. Because probably what happened is he saw a file on his computer. He opened it up and looked at it, saw it was a novel, and just thought, oh, Peter hasn't deleted this, and he deleted it. Because it's a novel, and they don't publish novels. They publish poetry, and this is not poetry. So it clearly belongs in the garbage. I'm not even going to look at it. There is no, like, denouement to this these stories. There's no, like, then I became successful later. Uh, then super fame came to me in some other way. Uh, no, that's where reality kicks in once again. And I make a podcast where I talk about my failures that uh, hardly anyone listens to. So... At least I don't have coronavirus. So that's uh, just real life for you. The loss of podcast. The loss of podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. Leave a text to a voice question or comment at voicelink.fm slash podcast. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast, sexy out homies. Because now I get a locker, now I get a lot, because now.